2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 30 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sasodia. Hey, Raj. Hey,
1: Timothy. I remember when turning 30 used to be a big milestone, right? So I think we've reached some kind of adulthood in our podcasting careers
2: yes exactly never trust anybody under 30 in terms of numbers of podcasts so we're we're finally in the trustworthy era (laughs) well done team (laughs) well today we have a very special guest and um i guess begin by sort of saying we're all in the same location though you wouldn't guess it by our backgrounds and the location we're at is in a beautiful retreat center in Costa Rica. That has uh, been just a wonderful place for Raj and I to spend the last couple of weeks. And today we are with the um, co-founder of that and a uh, gentleman who's also co-founded the world famous Omega Institute almost 45 years ago. So here we are with uh, Stefan Schaffen Good morning, Stefan.
0: Good morning, Timothy. Good morning, Raj. Uh... Good to see you in person these days while you're here and you're on Zoom again so this is an interesting way to do it.
2: (laughs) Yeah well I, I thought I would begin you know this is about conscious capitalism and conscious leadership and maybe begin with the consciousness part because you're really one of the pioneers in this whole era of raising people's consciousness. Now what people need to be reminded of is that you started off as a medical doctor. You've written a book called Time Shifting, which was a very important book, uh, at least in my life, uh, around the idea of time and how we relate to it. And perhaps most importantly, you founded two institutes that are really focused on this idea of raising human consciousness, the Omega Institute um, in Rhinebeck, New York, and of course, Blue Spirit here in Costa Rica. So maybe tell us a little bit about um, your journey around this idea of creating spaces where people can raise their consciousness.
0: Well, I, obviously, one's journey begins from, from birth in the environment one's born in. But I'll, I'll move it later than that to when I was in medical school and I had been at that point in, in, in time, before coming to medical school, I had been part of the the '60s generation that had uh, tried out all the new things of the psychedelic movement, of meditation, and so on. And I remember coming to medical school still as a hippie and walking in and looking around, and everybody was wearing jackets and ties, except for me, at least the men and the women were well dressed, and and I realized that I was in a somewhat different environment. Now, what was uh, fascinating at the time is a week later, they voted for the class president, and I'm, I'm rather shy when it comes to meeting people, but they they voted on me for president, and I realized nobody knew me. It's just I represented what they had given up to come there, to be within a more conventional environment. So I went to my time at medical school and. One day, one of the professors came up to me who I didn't know and said, I've been watching you and I think you should go work abroad for a while. Where would you like to go? I'll get you a Reader's Digest grant. And I immediately said India, and that changed my life because I went to India in the uh, early 70s to work in a hospital up 8,000 feet in the foothills of the Himalayas. And There, I would spend my time in the hospital in the morning, but in the afternoon, I was led to somebody who had been a compatriot of, uh, he was a professor when he was younger, but he had become a compatriot of Mahatma Gandhi and gone to prison with him. And since that time, he had become a renunciate and very learned being, but he lived on the floor of the temple. And every day I would spend time with him. He had no students per se. He wasn't looking for students, but my days were spent with him and he said to me, and he just simply went by the name Bhagwan, which means God, but he'd given up his his name to become a renunciate. And, and he said to me, he said that, you know, it's the lawyers who cause the arguments and the doctors who cause the disease because they rely on that to be the case. And so one needs to start to change the viewpoint. And the viewpoint is that humans can rise beyond death, disease, and decay. And that stuck with me ever since. And I recognized that unless I could devote myself to changing society in some way, so I had thought about going into preventive medicine, but that was a kind of academia that didn't interest me as as opposed to trying to have a direct impact on large groups of people. And that's when I came back, I became involved in running a commune at the time, uh, a, a community for people, and then we bought land. We, we lived up in the mountains, but then we started to need businesses. And that's when I, with the help of others, started creating Omega Institute. And it was a place where people were going to come to learn a different way of being than the purely capitalistic society that didn't seem to be sharing its wealth with everyone. And so we, as a matter of fact, it was very interesting capitalistic learning for me at the time because we set up a financial system Mm -hmm. where for every hour you worked, you got a credit. And so that credit meant if you were working in the kitchen, if you were doing the dishes, if you were watching children, you got one credit. If you were out with a chainsaw cutting wood so we could have or you were out in our Volkswagen repair shop or our bakery, you, you would get the one credit. Now I was in charge of all of that. <laughs> and it was. Far, and so in those days, a credit was worth about 85 cents an hour. At the end of the month, whatever we had in money, we would divide it up amongst all the people according to the amount that they, of credits they had. So it just wasn't quite working at that level. So I remember coming up with the idea that we would say, if you had a more strenuous job for which no one was getting paid, let's say like change sawing wood to get firewood, then you would get 1.2 points or 1.3 points. And if you were in one of our businesses, we would add 10% based on the profit you made that month. And so though everybody was working hard, as soon as we put in the 10%, at our Volkswagen repair shop, profits doubled that next month. And I realized incentive is of it. You just have to totally socialized. it every- so everybody goes to sleep. So it's a very interesting aspect that I'm sure you both deal with in terms of conscious
1: capitalism. Then why Why only Volkswagen? I'm sorry. uh, You only had Volkswagens there. Why only Volkswagen? Oh, it just happened to be
0: uh, the guy who had it was an ex. The guy living in our community. He knew Volkswagens. He had had a Volkswagen repair shop before. So there, we took care of all the Volkswagens in that area. So there was no no reason other than we had somebody with the with the prerequisite skills to do it.
2: Okay, so so we've established your capitalist credentials now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> I realized that as, as I know your work, it's some, somewhere in the balance that one needs to find the taking care of the all, but also the incentive to be, to be creating and being creative and, and having some return on that creativity as well. So uh, that led me in and then I, I was still very interested because when we were setting up Omega, Omega was a nonprofit. And for the first 25 years that I ran Omega, even though we were able to buy a, a campus of 250 acres and repair it and so on, uh, we were able to succeed without the need to be getting donations and so on. We, we, we worked it in terms of my feeling at the time, and it's changed now But uh, at Omega, but in those days, my, my belief was that nonprofits, if you were trying to save the whales, that needed just donations the whales had no source of income to you but we were giving out certain kinds of teachings that if they were valuable to people then they would be willing to pay for those teachings and that's really how we succeeded now at a certain point we needed to raise money so that for those who couldn't afford it could also attend but I wanted to make sure in the beginning that what we were creating wasn't just some idea that really had no value to anyone and and The money is a form of
1: exchange
2: for value yeah well say a little bit more about the the programming and how you started off thinking about the goal of omega i mean you were part of this movement and it was growing and society as in general was beginning to place some value as you rightly point to on these opportunities to raise our consciousness or to go on a spiritual journey
0: Um, Well, in the spiritual journey back then, there were a number of yoga ashrams that were developing and so on. And I came out of uh, Pirvelayat, who uh, was a Sufi and believed in the commonality of all of the, the spirit of all the great religions. And so one of the purposes of Omega was not to be a focus of either Buddhism or Sufism or anything, but to really be open to where... There's consciousness and true spirit showing up, and that shows up in so many different ways on the planet, from Native American, from looking at Tibetan Buddhism, or looking at the what was the offerings from the, sh- the shamans in the jungle. So wherever there was wisdom, and we currently live in a society, and I'm sure we'll get into this, that really doesn't value wisdom. It values just the thinking and the intelligence wisdom is something that takes a time and to really develop and that's it's not just factual information it's depth information and so that's what we were looking for is people who were the deep thinkers of our time and many people who came there along with Pure alive we had ramdas on our board of directors joan halifax uh, was on the board, even the astronaut, Edgar Mitchell was on the board. So we were really spreading out uh, David Bohm who uh, was so involved in in, uh, in the new physics, he came and gave talks. So, so we were really looking at who were the outliers, not just the conventional people that had wisdom to share. And if we could find these people and really, Look more at the world of consciousness, look more at the world of well-being, look more at the interconnected world because we're already becoming society where specialization has happened. So I consider myself a generalist. I'm much more interested in the whole than I am. As as is said, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, but we have too many people who just look at small parts and that's all they see. And so starting to change that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in, in creating this. And when, when we moved down here to Costa Rica, which we'll get into in a moment also, was starting to honor the nature around, which in so many places in the world is no longer being honored, actually is being denuded. And so that has to be part of what we
1: humans incorporate into any attempts in moving forward. And, uh, Stefan, how would you compare what Omega's vision and mission was with, say, Esalen, which was growing around the same time? I think they started in the mid-60s, and perhaps Kripalu. I mean, those are the three that come to my mind. Would you see that your fellow travelers, obviously, on a journey, but you were different? I I did.
0: I I spent a lot of time. I would even teach at Esalen in those days, and we would have meetings. They had gotten much more into uh, a lot of the psychological profile we and we became more involved in some of the deeper spiritual or meditation practices and so on but not much different many of the teachers in one or the other when i uh, actually when Kripala started i had been at the time i doctor and uh, and help him find the place, because I had looked at the property that is now Kripalu, but at the time we didn't have any money. So <laughs> they had some money, so they were able to do that one. But they were first really mostly a yoga ashram with, with Amrit Desai. And then as that unraveled in some ways, then started, they started to look around and do the kinds of programs on a year-round basis that Omega and Esalen did as well. So I really like the work that they do and they do amazing work now and there were a few other places as well, but mostly I would say we had more connection on the, on the West Coast with,
1: uh, with Esalen and, and Omega here on the, on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't really practice as a doctor. I mean, you were, kind of went straight into this, right?
0: No, I, I went, I practiced as a doctor and did that for many
1: years. I, I
0: had to find some way to pay for my working in a nonprofit. So, in those early days, and I, I became very involved in the alternative health movement, and which has morphed into. Uh, what we now know uh, as integrative medicine, as functional medicine. It's had multiple names and we had many programs with Jeff Bland, with Mark Hyman, with David Perlman, all the well-known names, Andy Weil, all of those, uh, Dean Ornish. They were all my contemporaries and I would run programs where we would do these gatherings of many of the forward-looking physicians who would then be trading notes because whatever we as, even to this day, what we do as physicians, unfortunately, is not recognized in terms of health care. We don't have health care in the United States. We have disease care. Mm-hmm. Throughout the Western world, we only have disease care, and most everything is paid for by the and it's a very strange system because it's paid for by the pharmaceutical companies and the pharma- all the tests are done by the pharmaceutical companies investing in their new medications. And one of the problems we have, not because there are any bad people in the system, but in, a, in the current form of a capitalistic system, investment goes to return. And there is nothing that returns as well in the pharmaceutical industry as chronic disease. The problem with a cure is you lose a customer. The problem with somebody dying is you lose a customer. But if somebody's in chronic disease and they stay on that indefinitely, that medication, even requiring more over time, that's a success in terms of the pharmaceutical industry. And I would remember as a physician having someone come in to see me with, let's say, hypertension, and they were put on antihypertensive medications and told to stay on it. Your blood pressure is normal. Just stay on it. Now, for me as a physician, my goal is to get them off that. And we were going to look at why do you have stress? What's your diet? What's your exercise regime? So when I look at this, and now here in Costa Rica, in spirit, I have a longevity center. But it's really about, and we call it wisdom and well-being. What it's really about is understanding on a much deeper level that who we are in our chronological age is different than what our biological age is. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really fascinated by this because what we see is though people have been living longer, and I would say up until the last 100 years, every year life expectancy in the Western world has gotten higher, except in the last few years where it's starting to drop. And I believe the problem is that while we've extended life in some ways, the quality of life is not extended.
2: When, we, when I
0: talk to people and I ask them, how long do you think you live? They always base it on where their parents are, their grandparents are, but they're not eager to see themselves be like that because we're surrounded by nursing home people who really have chronic disease, ill health, dementia, etc. And so there's a lot we can do but it's mm. different than using mm. medications. It's really about well-being.
2: Well, I love that because I think that increasingly for leaders – um, you know, in the workplace, there's a lot of discussion, particularly now as a result of COVID, about a healthy workplace, about wellness in the workplace, whether it be mental health, whether it be whether we're creating a healthy environment for people to come back into and work. And so I think never before have we had as much focus on health and wellness in the workplace. And yet, And yet, if the leaders themselves aren't on their own sort of path of wellness and wholeness, then it's very hard for them to bring that to the workplace other than in a a programmatic way. You know, we have a program around wellness and things. So, talk to me, talk a little bit maybe about how you view that. When you think of the retreat center that you've got in Costa Rica and you think about this need for, for leaders. Who are in high stress jobs to more and more find this space of wellness and well being. Um, how do you see the role of a place like Blue Spirit in that?
0: When I started Blue Spirit here, and now the Longevity Center, where we really focus on what, what true well being means, what true longevity means, it's important that we chose Costa Rica. One of the things that I see, and for those who haven't seen the David Attenborough most recent movie, it's it's astounding because he at 93 is cogent, clear, and he speaks throughout about what he has seen happen to nature during his lifetime. No one has seen it the way he has. And I love that about two-thirds of the way through, he says, but there is one place. He says, Costa Rica. And I felt that the moment I came here almost 30 years ago. There's a relationship with the land that to me represents where humans need to be going. And so when we talk about health, we can't just talk about individual health. We can't just talk about human health. We have to talk about health of the entire biosphere and the entire ecosystem. We are so intertwined in our beings with how nature is, that are not recognizing it, and you mentioned COVID. COVID to me is a disease that has happened because a virus has come out of a situation where its, eco, its ecosystem has been destroyed and it breaks out. If we're not living in balance, <clears throat> we will continue having more COVIDs. These are our creation because this is us out of balance. So when I look at human health, and and too often those people looking at longevity, it's really about the continuation of the I. I want to live forever. I want to still have my virility. I want to still be as though I'm young still. And I think that's a severe mistake. And we have a lot to learn from nature. There are some trees on the planet that are 10,000 years old. We live to 100 that would be a hundred hundred year lifetimes, mm. so there are plants there are animals that have lived that live on them on this planet the baleen whales over two hundred years so there are creatures living life forms that that we can learn from, but we need to learn from those and part of the learning that I work with and the best way I can give the example is If by age 30, you're six foot tall, by age 60, you're not 12 foot tall. But we keep eating and we keep acting as though we're still growing. So one of the things, though people are living longer, if we look at obesity rates in the United States, we see that in 1970, it was around 10 or 12 percent. By 2030, it's going to be 50 percent. So we are growing, except we're growing this way, mm. or we're growing cancers, or we're growing things we don't want. That makes up part of chronic disease. So when we look at optimal well-being, and I'll often ask this question of people when I'm teaching, how long can you live without, without eating? Two weeks, three weeks a month. How long can you live without water? Three days, four days, a week. How long can you live without oxygen? It's really short, really short. So, the whole heat of this game is oxygen. That's how we have evolved to be multicellular creatures. All the multicellular creatures on the planet have learned to deal with oxygen as the way to get the electrons that get our energy going. Now, the interesting thing about that is that you look at what we're doing to the environment, oxygen levels go down. People living in cities and office buildings, there's not enough oxygen. COVID is an oxygen disease. The more we deal with so exercising, taking care of oneself, all of these, living in nature, all of these things dramatically help the way we can be. So we are also, we often use the word I or me. So there are anywhere from 500 to 4,000 mitochondria in every cell of the body. We have 35 trillion cells in the body, not including our body. We are one giant we, and yet we're acting as though it's only the I. The imbalance of this I and we is the problem of our world, the problem of our society. And I tend to look at sort of a mandala that was created by Native Americans, where if you look at the the vertical line, the vertical line is the sun. Mm. The vertical line is the eye. The vertical line is the vertical line is the male. The horizontal line is the we, it's the feminine, it's the moon. We can go on with the different aspects of that. Why is that important? Because we live in an I society. We live in a male society. And the male society doesn't recognize, is active. It doesn't recognize rest. It's the doing, not the being. This is what's destroying us. It's destroying the capitalism, it's destroying the way our systems are failing right now, because it's ever growth. There's never rest. This is what humanity and beyond humanity, the planet needs. Farmers of the past would let their their fields go fallow. The Sabbath, you had a day of rest. We don't consider that valuable anymore as though we should always be one. I work with an organization where I weekly have meetings to work with the, the, the main organization about 2000 people and we work with a dozen, once a week, a dozen people. I mentioned this because I was working with them this morning and I zoom in and today it was very simple. I just started with a quiet. I said, look everyone, close your eyes, take some breath. They've been through some emergencies. It's a healthcare system some emergencies this last week, and for each person, it was the first time they just got to simply feel themselves, because they were trying to help everybody else, but just in that opportunity, we don't take enough quiet time, we don't take enough time walking in nature, the opportunity when people come here to Blue Spirit is simply that, that's what you're experiencing this time, is it? actual shift that takes place when we're in the city where I don't really want to travel to cities anymore I'm more interested in traveling in nature and spending time where if I walk on the beach one's rhythm is really different so one learns the body requires learning this shift of rhythm It's sleep and activity I' Do a lot of exercise where I'm really fast. So I'm not suggesting that we pull back from that. I actually want to do that more. The diet has to change. All of this, we start to see that at different stages of life, we have to be different. Mm. And then we create the whole. That's what you're doing with conscious capitalism, recognizing it's not just growth, and not just growth so that financial quarterly return people go to their doctor and they expect the doctor to tell them how they are. They are ridiculous. We should know how well we are. We should be able to feel that. And when we feel stress, we should be able to deal with it, not with medications. It's okay to use medications in the beginning, mm. but the end goal for me is for people to feel relaxed enough and know how to self- relax, and self-regulate. And that's where meditation comes in. The value of knowing how to quiet within is necessary. I think that's an important part of my practice. Yeah. I also like to, when I'm playing tennis, run as fast as I can. We have to be able to do all of these things if we're going to be really vibrant as human beings. And ultimately, those are, those are the keys to longevity. If I look at all of the actual keys to longevity, I find them in the natural world, in the way plants act, in the way animals act. For instance, fasting. Every species that has evolved on the planet at certain times goes through famine. Now, in order to continue to survive, it needs to be able to get through the famine. Remarkably, the biological system is smart enough that during time of famine, we know this, for instance, women who have at times been in times of famine or war and so on, stop ovulating. Why? Because there's not enough to go around to feed a child. But if the species is going to evolve, that's what the children, so what happens in the body? Actually, the body turns off its aging process. So we tend to think of aging as something inevitable, but we actually can turn it off.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Fasting helps. So knowing at a certain stage where we don't need to be growing, is a time we should be incorporating fasting and changing the diet and turning off things like sugar which tend to boost up the growth but decrease our long term survival and there are so many so many of these aspects that we can learn from our environment
2: well, I love one of the um you know, put it in the context of leadership, you know, a couple of really important things. One, I think that, you know, you talked about that there's a time for activity and there's a time for rest. And leaders really have to think hard about how they're refreshing. Where are they going and rejuvenating? Where are they building time into their schedules? Either on a weekly basis, but surely on a yearly basis where there's moments where they have a chance to step back and reflect and just get centered on what's important and i think that as you said uh, you know just being here in this beautiful environment in this very you know soulful environment gives you a chance to calm down slow down and have some time to reflect and i think that's that's incredibly important And and it comes to the second point which is Part of this is experiential. You can't read a book on this. Um, ultimately, there is something about the place. This place here has a vibe to it. And um, experiencing that um, is an important part of development. So you can't just teach a course. You also have to make an element of it which is experiential. And, and I think that you've hit on that as well, You know this idea of that the place matters it has a vibe
0: well i'm struck with uh, the word vacation which comes from the same root as vacuum Mm. which is to empty and so when we go on vacation many people go to these thrill vacations and what we need for those of us who are continually on the go is an opportunity to drop into something where we empty. Mm. And that's what I try to create here so that it's quite intentionally, we're right on this beautiful beach, which is a turtle preserve. And as you've seen, when you go down there, you're immediately immersed in nature because you walk down there and the buildings, it's beautiful, but the food is delicious, but simple. There's no telephones in the rooms. I guess now people use their cell phones anyhow, but that was the original intention. And try and trying to make it not just where there's always activity. I have spots all over the place where people can go and sit by themselves mm-hmm. or can congregate with others with the idea that this is an opportunity. That's why places have been called retreats. Now, I've many of the old retreats, and I remember Omega in that way, and when we first began wrestling, you had very um, simple quarters. And while we're not trying to make it with, uh, we have no TVs in the room, we have no chocolates on the pillow and stuff like that, because we want the diet to be very healthy and we want people to be simple, but really well taken care of. So one of the things also here, which I really have just, benefited from in this way, but I benefit from it every day because I have a staff that's extraordinary. And I would say one of the things that I noted when I first came to Costa Rica many years ago was that this is the only country in the Western Hemisphere that has no standing army. Seventy years ago, President Figueres decided to abolish the army. It was was not in a time that was just peaceful in Central America. But by doing that, the money went to health care and education. But what mostly I feel is that the people here feel disarmed. The people here feel that they are, you just feel an at-easiness, a good mood. One of the things lacking in our world right now is good mood. Everybody's out for self. Get out of my way. I'm going to get here. I don't feel that. And I I feel especially in these days when I see the tumult happening in supposedly civilized societies, it feels far more civilized to me here because people are kind and gentle and it's not without its problems. Now, that also then got converted into its care of the environment because 50 years ago, what happened in Costa Rica is that, and there's some fascinating things, it's why it's become on an economic level, it's reaping the rewards of its wisdom. So 50 years ago, when the multinationals came down and the forest coverage was 70%, they took it down to 20% by clear-cutting trees, putting in cattle, doing monocrops of pineapple to palm oil and so on. And led by actually a dear friend and the, the daughter of the President to Abolishiani, Christiana Figueres. She led a movement that now the forest coverage is back to over 50%. So Costa Rica is known now as green. And Christiana Figueres worked with the United Nations. She was the chief architect of the Paris Climate Corps. So this is a country committed. Now what's happened from this, is that you see in Costa Rica it's known as a green country and as a result the economy has been because of that. So that we have a beach near us, it's a turtle preserve, it's, it's up a few miles, and previously the locals would take the turtle eggs that would be on the beach and they'd bring them to San Jose and you could sell them a lot because you could crack it into your beer and it was a sign of virility to drink beer with a with the egg in, a raw egg in, okay so what was done at that point was that and it was just brilliant there was a deal made where if they preserved the eggs they were allowed to take 10% and sell them still because this was now their tradition so it's hard to just say, sorry, though you did that, this is no longer allowed. But now in these times when, when these species are scarce, we need to protect them. But in the protection, the town was given the right to have people come and pay to come see the turtles laying the eggs and the, and the, and the little turtles when they would hatch to go out. So, the, so, the, so the, the little town makes a lot of money off the tourism because it's green tourism. So green tourism has turned into a great win-win. It's a win for the environment, and it's a win for the community. So finding things like that happening here has been really, for me, profound and one of the things that we really try and support here and really help this happen.
1: Wow, it's a beautiful story. I remember when I first came to Costa Rica a few years ago, and it was for launching Conscious Capitalism here, but uh, I had the opportunity to meet uh, one of the two Vice Presidents at the time. And uh, and we talked about this, this uh, could be a role model for the uh, first Conscious Country, based upon the mindset that prevails here, the history of abolishing the army, the education, the emphasis on educating everybody, especially uh, young girls and women, uh, sort of, uh, the low crime, the connection to nature, all of that. So there's just a lot that Costa Rica has to, uh, has to offer the world. It's so wonderful. Uh, I thought we might switch gears to, uh, this idea of the wisdom of elders and also a little more about your book on time shifting, which Timothy has read, but I haven't, but I'd love to explore. Explain.
0: Well, uh, the wisdom of, of elders is, is interesting to me And one little story because I mentioned that Ramdas was, um, on our board of directors at, at Omega for many years, and was a close friend. And I remember him saying at one point, he had first gone to India, he had had his experiences with his guru, and then he came back and he was teaching in the States. And after a number of years, he went back to India. And when he arrived there, everybody kept saying to him, you look so much older, you look so much older. And he, it was a feeling like, oh, what's the matter with me? I look older. Now, he came to realize that what they were saying to him, actually, at the time was a compliment. Like, you look so much wiser. Not, but in the Western world, if, you, if somebody says, oh, God, you're looking old, that isn't a good sign, right? We, we want to look young forever. Everybody so. as a result, what we do is we... Even in the medical field, so that we start to do uh, surgeries and implants and whatever, so that. So, when I first started getting into the longevity field, I started to see that everybody, all the physicians, were looking at ways to keep one perpetually young, be it through cosmetic surgery, the use of growth hormone, that a man should be able to stay virile forever. It's one of the things of using. Various, if there's erectile dysfunction, then there's a sense of I'm not not a full male or something like this, and and breast reduction, all the various surgeries that get done. So it's not to say those aren't okay, but it's a misplaced focus. And with that comes not enough value given to wisdom. We're no longer a wisdom society we turn to the young ones. And it's very difficult now because I know that my grandsons are more capable on their little devices than I am. Mm. And so they don't look to the elders for advice. And there's a natural feeling for people who are just in their 20s and so on, and just getting, up, getting off in business where they're not looking to the elders for advice because what do they know about what they're doing? And somehow we need to find a way of, if in essence, marketing device. Mm. I mean, marketing wisdom so that it can be seen as useful, seen yeah. as really having value. And in order for that to happen, again, it's one of the reasons I love the idea of having an event here with Conscious Capitalism or many of the people who come down here because we see a lot of people now coming into this area who've been very successful in the digital world, who are looking to get away from some of the craziness in the Western world, who are coming down here and there start to be people who are looking for something deeper, some way of merging a deeper consciousness with the technology that's evolved. If we as we're not gonna get rid of the technology, but if we get rid of the wisdom, that will be as harmful and we humans will not survive that.
2: No, I think it's right. I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on innovation and innovation around technology where we all are assuming it only comes from the youth who understand the new world order. And in essence, they, they do understand the new world order, but we need the wisdom to navigate that new world order. And when we start to say like, what are we gonna do with this technology? What are the limits? How do we best optimize it? These are questions that, that pertain a little bit more to wisdom and, and how we're going to operate these kind of high-tech businesses. The, the, those are wisdom questions and not necessarily knowledge questions. So I, I think you're absolutely right. This, we need to find that way of bringing wisdom back into the workplace and back into the idea of, 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 of executive leadership.
0: You know, with, with time, which I'll come back to for this, what's really fascinating is as things are going faster, these labor-saving devices is not saving anybody time. <laughs> what's happening is everybody is getting busier. Mm. There's very little downtime, and in the downtime, we tend to fill it up with our machine. Where da 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 everybody's continually Back and forth in them, so there's there, uh, and I use the analysis or in in looking at time shifting or the analogy rather, it's like riding a 10 speed bicycle, and so you want to be able to shift your gears. If you're riding up a mountain, going down a, a hill, around a curve, you want to be able to shift into a gear to do it at ease. The problem we have right now is people have become so fast that there's very little slowing down. And actually, people, when they start to slow down, start to feel really uneasy and shaky. And that's something we as a society at large need to address because what's happening there, and this is where I see some of the work that's most important right now, is that we're going into simply the mind world, the thought world, and we're disconnected from the emotional feeling world. So, so much of the anger that's going on in society right now is the inability to hold down the emotions, and they're just going like this. They're uncontrollable. So, there's very little development right now. I watch people trying to meditate, and they can't. The mind is just racing around too much. So it's a lot easier to just go back into their little machine and just tick tock away and do whatever. But if you say, just sit here and be quiet and just let your mind rest. Mm -hmm. So the practice of meditation, now, what takes people into that? That's one of the things here. And I feel this consciousness work, what we do at Blue Spirit. It's one of the reasons why, for me, the two important diasporas of our time Mm -hmm has been the unfortunate, <clears throat> what the Chinese have done to the Tibetans, but the result of it has been the Tibetan wisdom of thousands upon thousands of years coming into the society to teach, to recognize that this profound understanding is already thousands of years old. And we can actually tap into that and find a place inside that's not moving. Mm-hmm. And we need that. The other is what's coming from the plant medicines in the Amazon, where it's instead of being <clears throat> dopamine driven in the um, neuroendocrine system of our body, instead of it being dopamine driven, it's much more serotonin driven. See, in our society, dopamine is important as, because dopamine, we feel happy. But it's up and down, up and down, up and down. And you don't feel happy, you need more. So all addictions are related to dopamine. Serotonin is different. You feel at ease. Serotonin feels content. When you're content, you don't need anything else. We don't have a society that knows content.
1: Mm. We have
0: a society that's always driving for the next. People need to find contentment. You look at the billionaires of our society. They seem more driven than ever for more. And there seems less content of that. And the market goes down 5% and there's a, oh my God, what's happening?
2: Mm.
0: So this is not conscious capitalism. This is conscious. this This is capitalism out of deficiency. We don't have enough. There's a general feeling that we don't have enough so that we have poor people around us, we have starving people around us, and still we don't have enough billions of dollars for self. There's something wrong in that equation, and I would say it's the, the emotional bankruptcy that so many people are stuck yep. with right now. That kind of emotional intelligence it needs to happen for conscious capitalism to work,
1: because we have to get it the root source of that. Love it. I was going to say, uh, you were describing uh, the kind of capitalism we have. It's kind of a compulsive capitalism. It's also rooted in the insufficiency, but there's never enough because it's trying to fill a hole for many people that uh, cannot be filled with money. But that's unfortunately the cycle uh, that we've been in. Uh, You mentioned briefly some of the plant uh, medicines that have been used for thousands of years in many parts of the world. What role uh, do you see? in terms of elevating consciousness, which I think we're all united in terms of our purpose in the world. This is all what we're all about in a way. Uh, what role do you see for those plants now to aid humans in that journey so that we in fact, in turn, become stewards uh, back of nature and of, of life in general. Uh, and, and, and how do you see that evolving over time? I think the
0: plant world has much more intrinsic knowledge Than we give it credit for We think of it as something green out there that doesn't know much. Yet it has survived and thrived in balance with this entire planet. And it's the gifts, we can't live without the gifts of of the trees around us. They give us our sustenance, they give us the oxygen, they give us the food we eat. And in many other ways, they give us things as well. And I think, some of this has to do with what people have called the plant medicines. And I remember being in the Amazon and to an interpreter because we had used the, uh, the substance ayahuasca. And it's a vine and a leaf that separately don't have the same effect. Actually, one will make you sick and uh, by itself. And a- asking the Uh, the people there, how did they know, since they grow in different areas, to combine these? And I loved the answer that I was told, which was, the plants told us. Hmm. So being a Westerner, hearing that the plants told them, just didn't quite make sense to me. However, what one hears after more and more is that people who have really lived in nature like that, develop a kind of relationship where there is communication between the plant world and us. And since we've gained so much as humans from the substances we've gotten from the plants, be it from the mushrooms, be it from the uh, leaves or the barks or so on, there's still more lessons to be learned. And I think one of the things that we find is if you look at the indigenous people who have lived successfully on the planet, one of the things which is so unfortunate because they've disappeared, but they've disappeared because of the advent of what we humans call progress, which destroys their land and doesn't leave them. They, instead, we give them the toys of our advancement, but they get left destitute in the end. And so the unfortunate thing about that is they were actually not living that way because they had to. They were living that way previously previously, because they were content. Our progress has no contentment to it. Our progress just has a voracious appetite. And so what we can learn from the plant world is that by sometimes imbibing some of these, we drop into within ourselves, a different place where things are just as they are and it's okay. And that has an incredible power for people. So for so many people that I've now seen, who have had success, and they're striving still, one of the things when they do a variety of these serotonin-based ingredients, they actually start to feel a degree of contentment that they haven't felt before. Now, that contentment passes, so one needs to find ways to incorporate that and practice that kind of a contentment. For instance, meditation will help that. Learning to still the mind, learning to be at ease with the emotional life within really stabilizes one so that one's not a hungry ghost, voracious for more, but actually content. We have so much more than our ancestors ever had, but we're not content. What's the matter with that? Why are we still so eager for more? Now, the reason I like the plant medicines is because when people come to meditation, but they've been so fast and pushing and pushing and pushing, and you say, well, sit and be quiet, it's really hard to do it. Mm -hmm. So one thing that happens is for people who have these plant medicine experiences, it breaks them open in a certain way. And that way of seeing goes, oh, I see something that hasn't been here. I want to understand that more. Not everyone. But having that opportunity is really powerful. Wow. So I think the combination of the two is important because the plant medicine, I don't, I've done plant medicines. I don't do them very much anymore because it's opened the door. And having walked through that door, I See, once you walk through a door, you don't necessarily need to keep walking through the same door. It's like, it's like learning different aspects of meditation. It's, it's like going to elementary school. You don't have to keep studying how to read and how to do mathematics. Once you've learned that, you go to your your next stage. Yeah. So the inner landscape needs to be cultivated. What we're cultivating now is just the mental aspect that does very good with digits and words and so on, but not very much good with feelings and contentment. So that to me is the cultivation and the reason for using these things. And it's one of the things that you want to do in nature. So we offer that here for people because it's an opportunity, this is part of nature. I'm not trying to synthesize it and then here, the, the, the word that's used often for this or the words that are used is set and setting. It's not, so the setting is extremely important. You want to be in a place where contentment is easy, mm. not, not where you're driving high speed down a highway. So that's my journey with it.
2: Stefan, thank you so much for your wisdom and, um, and sharing the journey that you've been on. And, of course, for creating this beautiful retreat here in Costa Rica. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you. I totally enjoyed
2: it. And for you, our listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast on whatever channel you're listening in, please subscribe, leave us a comment, and give us a rating. And thank you very much for our producer, Carla Viegas. Carla, thank you for all the good work you do to make sure that this comes out on a regular basis. We appreciate that enormously, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you again, um, Stefan, and we'll see you next week.